this guy ask for something? A glass of water or something? Oh, he just writes a little note, see? Better not ask me then. I can't read. talk about is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which I mostly think of as being authored by Carson McCullers because she wrote the novel it's based on. And before we started recording, you mentioned that you'd watched it weeks and weeks ago. You'd made some notes. Uh, and I just watched it very recently, so it's very fresh in my mind, plus I've made some notes. But I know a good way to get you into this, to, to warm you up for it and uh, <laughs> get you engaged with it and bring memories flowing of it. What did you think of Stacey Keach's drunk acting in it? Um, I was fine with it. It wasn't as annoying as Kenneth Branagh's in Peter's Friends. No, no, well, that's the thing. I thought it was pretty good. Because it was drunk acting rather than acting drunk. <laughs> that's a very fine distinction. No, it, it is. is. That's, that's cool. So he was convincing. Yes. That's great. Uh, you see, I know that Matt has a... Uh, there's many things that Matt's very particular about, and drunk acting is on the list, and it's one of those things that he... Which is understandable, because nobody wants to see somebody give a uh, kind of... A hammy performance, but I really like Stacy Keach. She's an actor. I would watch a movie because Stacy Keach is in it. This is his debut, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Well, he when you say debut, he probably had a towering career on the American stage before. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this and something like um, Cannibal Holocaust, <laughs> right? Were, were his early movies in his filmography. I, mean, I can confirm that in a minute. But he did do some something ridiculous like that. But he's a really first-rate actor. I really like him. He has a very small part in this. But it, it speaks to the quality of the cast in general. One of the notes I wrote down is that this... I think that this may be the, the finest film that we've watched. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the best, but it's so beautifully crafted. My main aim with this one was because you'd said that you'd really liked the look on... I can't remember which film it was we watched, but the Technicolor yes. styling of it. And I thought this one is absolutely... On the same, it may have been Hard Times, I think, which is a similar Depression era kind of vibe no, as well. No, it would have been something else because the, yeah. there was the entire. I know that's a great, so great comment because this was the first one I thought of when you said that because you were, I, it looks beautiful. What a brilliant choice because that's what I've written down. I've written down uh, my this is my first impression. I've written luminous color photography immediately struck me, and then I discovered that it's James Wong Howe who is, I don't know if you've, if you've heard of him, but he's one of the most famous cameramen who ever lived. He was part of a dynasty of cameramen. Yeah, one other movie, just to drop a name, he shot in black and white, very memorably John Frankenheimer's Seconds. But he's got a, a, an incredible pedigree and back catalogue. So when I saw it was him, I was doubly pleased. And not only is that this gorgeous glowing colour, which is so perceptive of you, to have latched onto when I mentioned it before, because this is exactly the kind of stuff I love. I, I can't remember which film it was. It might even have been something like The Man Who Haunted Himself. but I think it was. Yeah, and and this is, the, the photography in this is one of the great joys of it, but it's not just that it's pretty colours. The composition's wonderful, and it's marvellously, I've written something about how, yes, uh, not only superb use of colour, but fluid and mobile. There's a bit where the camera drifts up, actually. <laughs> um, 
Dario Argento did did, did something <laughs> yes. similar in a film we watched recently, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, well, you say similar, a little more excessive. Yeah, yeah. No, but the, 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 the camera floats up. It's not at the end. I know the bit you're referring to. It's much earlier in the film. It's just, I think it's when, when he's going the singer boarding runs house. in off the street and then runs up the stairs and then you see him in the bedroom. Yeah. It follows him up. Yeah, I think it is. It's a very well-timed shot. Well, the, look, the, when I, I sometimes say, oh, this guy's a great screenwriter, this guy's a great cinematographer. But I really mean that. Like, I've, I've been reading about James Wong Howe in connection with some of the great American movies for years and years and years, and he genuinely was like a revered genius. And, and I believe that he was Japanese-American, so it's all the more exceptional that in the savagely racist times that he, he was coming up, that he rose to such a position of prominence. As we do these in, in sessions, we're yes. also doing Niagara as part of this. And I oh, another terrific movie. And the, the photography, again. is phenomenal. And it's, it's uh, Joseph MacDonald, or Joe MacDonald, as he was known. He was Mexican and had a similarly uh, tough time of it in Hollywood, but still did, knocked out some incredible Could, films. Can you tell me any other career highlights, or shall I have a quick look on The Magic Computer? Which well, is by nothing side. sticks out, but he... I, Pretty sure he had three Oscar nominations over the course of his career. Oh, it was really um, good photography. But he did an awful lot of westerns. Mind you, there were an awful lot of westerns at the time, which doesn't really help. Did he do a lot of work with Hathaway, who did westerns? I mean, we're getting into the um, I didn't get that far. <laughs> I was trying to watch the film. <laughs> okay, I'm just quickly looking through his list of films. The Sand Pebbles would be one I was interested yeah. in. Mirage uh, ties in again with those... Uh, I was, we had a discussion about caper movies at one point. I couldn't think of the word caper movies. List of Adrian Messenger... Uh, interesting. I believe that's in black and white. It's a John Huston movie, and I think I've seen that. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll go over this when we hit Niagara, but um, it's a film that I always remember as being in black and white until I watch it and then realise it's in colour. Well, the colour smacks you in the face, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yes. Right. So We're not on that. <laughs> no, no, the are, but the photography is the first thing that you take in about this, and it's superb. And I do mean that this is one of the most, this is probably the most beautifully crafted film uh, that we've seen. It's perfectly made it doesn't have the strongest effect on me but it's perfect in in what it sets out to do i think and the cast is great the photography as we've discussed at length is great uh david grusin's music is just lovely i've written it's really nice isn't it thank you it's i'm so glad you liked it i've written grusin's score is perfect uh, i dug out the cd available on film score monthly <laughs> it's great because it's got all the extra tracks including what they call source music which means if they go into a cafe and there's a jukebox playing a tune. Grusin did that too, and he, and there's some really good R&B girl group stuff. It doesn't sound like it's filler written by some Hollywood dude. It sounds like the real thing. So if anybody's interested in film music, this is a, a top recommendation. Presumably, there's a fair bit of Mozart in there as well. I don't think they. I don't think there's any of the classical stuff yeah. in, which is a good good move because people can just go and get that classical music. But what they can't do is they get Grusin's original themes for this, yeah. which are. They're gorgeous. <laughs> it's a very simple theme as well. It's, uh... Very, very haunting. Well, just to set the scene for this, this is when you knew I was watching this film, you said something about coming and cutting down my dead body after, by which you meant it's that you thought it would be so depressing that I'd hang myself, correct? It, well, look, it's Carson McCullers, who isn't the happiest of writers, not a, was yeah, never the happiest of ladies. Not laughing, um, yeah. But just to set the scene, this is from the southern part of the United States. So this is sort of Tennessee, Williams country, Flannery. Is it Flannery or Brian or Flannery O'Connor? Wise blood. <laughs> anyway, it's that. It's John Hicks was directed, but was it set? It's a book. Right. Okay. Uh, it's um. So uh, well, I'm trying to paint as a picture of southern Gothic writers. Yes. Uh, and she's in that tradition. And this film is well. It's not really in the Gothic tradition. It's all very bright and sunny and suburban. 
on the surface. Yeah. But oh yeah. The trouble with the film is that, or the rather the book and the story generally, is that absolutely everyone is lonely. <laughs> no one's happy with their lot. Well, I want to just. I think that as one of the features of what we do in this podcast is that we should recommend, and perhaps at the end of the podcast, each episode, a companion movie. If we feel that there's something that strongly resonates with one film, say, if you liked this film, then you should definitely check out this because there's some kind of relationship between them. Well, in terms of this film, I would probably go with another Castle McCullers adaptation just to get an idea of oh, what was going on. Well, I'll tell you what, I believe that uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye is one of his. It is. It's not the best film. I would go it's for a very interesting film. Simon Callow's one and only directorial effort, oh. uh, Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Oh, that. But, well, um, please include that in our list because I haven't seen that. I'm have you not? Very interested. Ah, it's Vanessa Redgrave. Well, no, no, no. Yeah. You had me at Carson McCullough's, but then you had me again at Simon Callow. So yeah. good good on you. It's, I mean, the frustrating thing is it's not an adaptation of the book, it's an adaptation of the stage play. But makes it's still, sense. it works. No, but, it works but that well. makes sense of yeah. Callow, because he is a stage actor and presumably stage director. It's a Merchant Ivory production, remember? Oh, well, please, bring it on. Anyway, so very interesting novelist, Carson McCullough's, uh, and that would be an obvious companion piece. But f I would recommend a film called Fat City. Again, John Houston. John Houston directed the uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, which I was y yapping about a moment ago. Houston and McCullough should be a, a match made in heaven. They were. They, just, he, used it, to, I, he used to take... I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I will get John Houston's account of Carson McCullough's and I'll read what it says, but that might be more appropriate for that particular film. But he basically, he, she was like this... Um, she was always ill, so she was an invalid, right? So she'd be sitting in bed, and he'd take her like a bourbon and have a little thimbles of bourbon together. It's very interesting. John Houston would. Yes. Oh, so they met. Yeah. I was well, not aware of this. Well, they they met when he was adapting uh, her book into a screenplay. It's an interesting film, Reflections of Golden Eye, but we'll leave that aside. Mm. The film that I'll, I'm going to recommend is a different Houston movie. Isn't it interesting? Because he did another McCullough's, but I wouldn't recommend that. What I, I'd say is <laughs> Fat City, because it stars Stacey Keach as a drunk. So he's basically drunk for most of the film. No, Is that why you asked me if I was okay with the drunk acting? No, I I only asked you that because the, the discussion had arisen when we were talking about Peter's Friends about how bad... Kenneth Branagh is a marvellous actor, and I think he's great, but his drunk acting in this movie wasn't very good. And then and you said you had a particularly low tolerance for bad drunk acting. So when I saw the drunk scenes in this, that was my first question. That's why I brought that up. But actually, Fat City is a movie about boxers, about the boxers who are never going to be rocky. And he's, this guy's an alcoholic, he's also a boxer, Jeff, Jeff Bridges in it. But it's in the the loneliness of the everyday people and the sort of terminal heartbreak, which is, I think, the domain of the heart is a lonely hunter. Yeah. Uh, I feel that Fat City resonates for that reason as well as for the, the presence in both films of Stacey Keach. I haven't seen financial. it, so I'll give that one a go. Well, yeah, we'll put it on our list. That's the yeah. beauty of this. So uh, we're talking about what a wonderful cast this is. Um, I have a bunch of stuff to say about Sandra Locke, but I'll let you get started. On Sandra, Sandra Locke or on Alan Arkin? Oh, well, that's it. Well, I think we should build up to Alan Arkin because yeah. he's he's stunningly good in this, he's I would say. stunningly good in Oh, okay, let, let's, let's, get, let's go straight <laughs> in. The thing about, well, this is a film about, uh, okay, it starts with this guy who's obviously got some mental health issues. He's a big fat guy and he, he's wandering around late at night and he smashes the window of a bakery and just begins compulsively eating the, the sweet pastries. Yeah. As the burglar alarm uh, uh, klaxons behind him and the sirens. And we cut back to uh, a house that he shares 
in fact, is it the same bedroom where uh, another, not a middle-aged man, but sort of a 30-ish man, wakes up and realises that the other bed's empty and that his friend has gone amok. Yes. Because this has obviously happened before. And it turns out that the guy, um, that, do you know the name? The actor who plays that character. Oh. The, the big fat friend. It's all right. I've got it right no, in front of me. No, I don't. I know um, it's... Uh, uh, Peter Mam- Mamakos. Who's played Spyraminis? I'm sorry, I, I I don't speak Greek, so I can't wrap my lips around that. But basically, Spyro Spermo, no Spermonides, Spermonides, and Peter Mamakos plays that part. Uh, but he's this big, fat, not entirely rational guy, and it, as he gets arrested, it turns out he's also mute. Yes. He can't speak, and so his friend um, Alan Arkin, who plays. A character very ironically named Singer, John Singer, go, goes to the police station, bails him, bails him out. He obviously protects this guy and looks after him. And it was quite a way into the movie before I realised that Singer is also mute. Yes, it's, it doesn't help you along at all. Um, yeah, you you've got to piece this together yourself, and you've got to piece together what they're saying. Did, did it surprise you too when you realised that he was because he's so competent? Well, I've read the book first. Oh well, that, then, <laughs> and I'd seen the movie before, but so long ago I'd forgotten that that's the way it's set up. And but the the, the thing about Alan Arkin is that he his performance has this quiet dignity and likability about it. Absolutely, he reminds me a lot of um, the face behind the mask. Um, it's to a lesser extent, I mean, obviously it's layered on quite heavily by Peter Laurie in that film, but it's a similar character in that he just wants to work, he just wants to get on with people, he wants to help where he can. They're both nice jewellers. <laughs> They're both watch repairers, yeah. Um, yeah, so they've got that in common as well. <laughs> Actually, it's Sandra Locke's dad who does the watch repair, but I'm sure... He does, that, doesn't he, as well? Uh, we see uh, John Singer, Alan Arkin, working away at the back of a jewellery shop. He's carving... Uh, initials into a silver platter but he, he's a skilled jeweler uh, and what happens is the fat crazy I, I, it seems i shouldn't say that he's crazy and educationally subnormal i couldn't work out what what Spermanides deal was well this has been a problem this is why the film isn't terribly well known because on release there were concerns raised that they were gay and that they were because together they, and they, they were they, a couple they shared the same bedroom yes yeah, separate beds and because it casts in the colours, there's a very good chance they are. I mean, having read the book and having watched the film, you can make your own decisions. Yeah, the, the, the thing is, that argues against that, is that Alan Arkin is so dapper and elegant and well-turned out, and this other guy's just a fat, shambling wreck. Which is most gay couples, I know. Oh, well then... <laughs> but there's also no suggestion of that sort of physical intimacy between them in the film. There's no suggestion of it, but, I mean, that would be... I, it would it would never you know 1968 it's never going to get very far but the, it, in a way it doesn't matter because it, it's clear, clear as the film progresses that he loves his friend and yeah. wants to protect his friend who whose friend who's not playing with a full deck correct absolutely but i don't know why we're talking about whether or not they're gay because we were trying to work out what spermanides deal was what he what i think what the deal was together in what way do you mean what his deal was what, what's wrong with him I, yeah yes what's wrong he's with educationally him? subnormal he's a deaf he mute is. Yeah. but obviously because he's a deaf mute it's much more difficult to handle him yeah. because you can't tell him what's wrong you can't reason with him you it's very difficult to communicate with him whereas singer can communicate do we, with him do we think that singer's taken him under his wing oh absolutely yeah, yeah. because we meet um his dad uh, god's sake Spermanides. Spermanides. it's very difficult who, who's we like runs a greek one, uh, grocery store yeah or he's got a shop and he basically says I, I just can't handle him you do what you can with him yeah so no one wants him, I, my i've 
you might know a bit about the backstory if you've read the book, but I would imagine that they met at deaf school or something, or that they have some background. I don't think it's mentioned. No, well, my, if I had to invent a backstory for them, I'd say that yeah. they met when they were young, being educated together in some kind of what would have just been a holding pen for poor, disadvantaged kids at the time. But in any case, uh, the shambling fat wreck of Aspermanides, his dad, as you say, washes his hands of him and puts him into a state institution. And Alan Arkins, John Singer, obviously doesn't want this, wants to get him out. And the only way to do that is to uh, become his custodian, is that the word? Yeah, legal guardian. Legal guardian, guardian, right. And so while that process is grinding on, like there's a very sympathetic lawyer at the beginning who advises him about this, says it's going to take years. He says, why don't you move closer to the institution where Spermanides is incarcerated so that you can um, be closer to your friend? And so... John Singer, I mean, it's a very different interpretation if they're gay lovers because he's just following his partner. But in the the non-sexual interpretation, he's just really selflessly uh, abandoning his old life, moving to this new town. They say it's almost a city. It's got three jewelers. Yes. And he goes there and he. And this is where the story really gets kicks in. He moves into a, a boarding house. It's not a boarding house. It's a family house where they've decided to let out the teenage daughter's bedroom. I'm sure this must happen a lot because they need money. So she's had to move in with her little brothers. That's what yeah. happened. And so they're renting out her room and John Singer goes there and uh, he rents the room and he becomes involved with the family. And there's a nice moment when he turns up at the door because he's had these beautiful cards printed. I love the cards. Yeah, the cards. He could have just got any old bit of paper knocked up. But he's actually gone to the trouble because this obviously crops up a lot in his life of having very nice cards made. Yeah. Which not only gives the impression that he's you know a man of means and trustworthy, but also that means that people take him more seriously when they see the nice. Well, the card, card. basically says, I, "I'm I'm a deaf mute. I can't hear or speak." Any, and I, the great thing is, I'm sure you've written this down too. It says. <laughs> What please is, do please don't shout. shout. Yeah, it's wonderful. And because it's it's like this tip of the iceberg thing that you could tell that this guy's have been shouted at all his life. But if you just shout loud enough, yeah. So I love that. And on the back of the card, he write a little message like, I, I'd like to look at the room, you know. Well, it's true of all lip readers that if you shout, they can't read your lips. You need oh, to, I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought I thought it was just like the, the gusting impact People of People have this habit of over-shaping their vowels when they know that someone's reading their So the shouting fucks up the, the lip yeah. reading. I had no idea, Matt. Yeah. This is a bit like when you explained to me about why they used to have people in elevators to drive. <laughs> so this is fascinating. No, I just thought that... I thought he had some residual hearing and pe- when people shouted, it was unpleasant. So no, that, no, no. no, that's interesting. No, I, fascinating. I, I used to have a deaf chum who oh. she was driven mad by people yelling at her all the time it's like it's no point yelling i'm not going to get any less deaf than i already am i've written here alan arkin is compelling from the first shot oh yeah he's just great i mean and he's got a, his face it's just a presence tremendous presence i adore alan arkin and what i like about this film is it for the most part for the most part he does comedy or light-hearted roles he doesn't often do full drama it shows what he's capable of yeah and this is i mean this is about as hard as it gets in terms of drama for a dramatic role for him well that's because he's such a great comic actor that he's constantly in demand for that so he doesn't often get to show his dramatic chops i would like us to add the russians are coming the russians are coming to our list of films to watch which is a comedy uh featuring him which i, I want to watch again anyway well i picked up a film the other day that i've been trying to get hold of for eons uh called simon which is him and Madeline Kahn. Is he not in Where's Popper? He's in everything. He... But Where's Popper? The point about that is that it's written by the guy who wrote Weekend at Bernie's. So that's a top one for you. If it is him, it might not be him anyway. He's done a lot of good stuff. 
hell of a lot of stuff. Just this morning before I came uh, came over here, I was watching Edward Scissorhands, and he's the dad in that, and he's so laid back in that film. I love his performance. I remember Tim Burton saying when he was directing him that um, they did that first scene. That the first scene they recorded, I believe, was the dinner scene. Yeah. And afterwards he said, you know this wasn't a read-through. <laughs> this was a take. Yeah. And he said, yeah. And he goes, are you going to do it like that? He went, yeah. yeah. He goes, well, okay. He goes, well, he said, everyone else is turned up. He said, I'm turning it down. Yeah. Which was... How did that work? worked fine. It yeah. works so well. Yeah. Um, but then most recently, I mean, I don't know if you saw it. It was such a stupid film, but... Um, I, for some reason, it really clicked with me. Uh, the amazing Burt Wonderstone. It, oddly enough, I have not seen or right. never heard of that. That film. is definitely going on our list uh, as an Alan Arkin film. Well, I, I watch <laughs> anything with him. He's the, 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 he has great presence and he has an effortless quality, mm. and he conveys enormous emotion by doing almost nothing, which is important in this because he doesn't have the resource of language. Oh yeah, he doesn't get to speak a single line, which is tough going. I mean, an easy script to learn, but. His performance is incredible. Plus, he I, has to learn sign language, and it's real sign language. It's not like they're just making it up as I'm they go along. I'm just looking up that he's still with us, which is great. He is just clinging on. God <laughs> bless him. So I've I've written, uh, you know, his is is compelling from the first shot, and it only gradually dawned on me that he was mute. It's just such a wonderful performance. Uh, so I was going to talk about Sandra, Sandra Locke. Locke yes. So now that we got to the house. The teenage girl who's been sulkily turfed out of the room because the family needs the income and Alan Arkin moves in. So she is in a natural position to resent him moving into her room. Her name is Sandra Locke. And it's hard to know where to start with Sandra Locke. But we'll start by saying that she was uh, cast in this film because they, they, they had somebody in mind for the role. And I believe that fell through. And then they decided just to do an old fashioned talent hunt across the country and she was, she was an unknown yeah. who came forward, and she ended up being nominated for the Academy Award for her performance. Arkin was nominated as well. Rightly so. Oh, I yeah. believe she lied about her age, because if I'm not entirely sure, but I've got a feeling she was 24 when she did Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and she's playing oh, 15. It was hilarious, because <laughs> I thought he was going to say she was too young, but that makes sense, because yeah. she's always had a waif-like quality. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, her career, as good as it was, and she's great in this, Yeah. Her entire career has been overshadowed by Clint Eastwood. Oh well, we'll get to that. A little but, but unfair. I do think that um, we need to talk about her breasts briefly because one of the what? I know her chiefly through the Clint Eastwood biographies, and I do remember one of one of them saying something that when she was on Hard as a Lonely Hunter, she had to wear like a compression bandage or something yeah. to eliminate any sense that she was a grown woman. This with, well, with this bosoms. happens a lot. Oddly enough, another film that we did in this session, which is uh, Susan Slept Here. Um, suffers from that as well. And oddly enough, because uh, it's um, kind of Debbie Reynolds. Yes. Carrie Fisher had to do the same in Star Wars as well. So. It, I think it's it's almost like foot binding. That's the reason it's stuck in my head. And mm. the and this is very weird. Um, Sandra Locke eventually succumbed to breast cancer, and I always thought maybe it was this horrible thing that she had to wear that, that just completely eliminated her her breast, like compressed them. Like, and I always think of foot binding in China how they do that. To, they used to. Uh, do that to girls hmm. and just it just seemed a case of a male world deforming a woman to suit their expectation but in this case the character well, in many Nick, ways Clint Eastwood did that too so. well that's a separate <laughs> issue but in this film Nick actually is supposed to be a young teenager so she yeah. does need to look like a waif in it so uh, yeah. I can't for the life remember who the actress was that dropped out but I was right about that because I, yeah. I yeah I read about that somewhere just before I did actually did some research for. I know what it is it's in the notes for the uh, the CD and it says that 
the, for the cast, for the part of Mick, the uh, actress originally considered was Mary Badham uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird. And it says she tested, for, she was in, uh, she's who they had in mind. She tested for the role of Mick but failed to land the part. There, thereafter, a nationwide talent search ensued. Mm. I think their reasoning was that she looked too old for the part. Mary Badham. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Also, you've got the problem, as with any Carson McCullough's uh, adaptation, is that you need a tomboy. And yes. You need someone who can pull that off. And unfortunately, there's an awful lot of actresses that can't. Well, no, it's, yeah, horses for horses, I yeah. guess. So, um, but Sandra Luck does a great job. Well, Sandra Luck is magnificent in it, and it, she had a very strange and interesting career. Well, interesting doesn't begin to describe it. She fell in, she was in a Clint Eastwood movie, and then it's very odd that they became very seriously involved, Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke. And I say it's odd because it's a bit like when Frank Sinatra fell in love with Mia Farrow, not that she was younger, but that she was waif-like. And you would have thought these guys would be lusting after and betting um, the most nubile of sex goddesses like Angie Dickinson. And perhaps they were. So it's unusual for them to go for these tomboy types. Mm. But Eastwood did, and they were very seriously involved and they parted very acrimoniously. Uh, I think we've... We, this is about the right level of detail to go into. They parted yes. very acrimoniously, but as part of... I'm going to call it a divorce settlement, but they were never married. But as part of the sort of deal... She had a three-picture deal as a director, and she did some very interesting films. I believe she did horror with Teresa Russell. Is that correct? Oh yeah, sorry, I said horror. Yeah, horror. horror. Uh, a film called Horror, uh, and she did one called Rat Boy, which sounds extraordinary. It's, I've only seen horror. Yeah, but we need to see Rat Boy just because it sounds so so extraordinary. <laughs> and I, th I can't remember what the third film was. Does anybody no, know? No, not a clue. I I do know the three-film deal because it came out because she only died uh, what a year ago, I think. Oh gosh, and. All her obituaries said the same thing, which is the former wife of Clint Eastwood, as opposed to actress, producer, director. She was never married to Clint Eastwood. Well, unfortunately, this is uh, how it happens in Hollywood, is that you tend to get remembered for who you married rather than what you did. She did one called... Oh, uh, there appears not to be a movie here called Whore, so maybe that was retitled. I hate IMDb. So Rat Boy is down here. There's something called Impulse, which I'm thinking is probably... That is also Teresa Russell, so it could just be that you... Uh-huh. And, uh, I don't think it's the same film. Though. Trading favors, right? Trading that could could that be? Oh, it's just just so annoying. I I'm not imagining things, am I? There was a movie called Whore that yeah, she directed. Yeah. Okay, then that must be Impulse. But I don't understand why they can just retitle things. The point is, she had this three picture deal. All the movies went south. Uh, none of them were successes, and she always blamed Clint Eastwood for that. But. I always thought well, you got to make three movies, you know, and that they're very uncommercial. Well, actually, Impulse, aka Horror, is quite a commercial movie about an undercover cop posing as a hooker. So they weren't entirely uncommercial, were they? She did get to make three films, but she had to go through an awful lot in order to get that reward. So, in that respect, oh, I wasn't going to get well, into this. Allegedly, she had to. Let's I, face it; this never went to court. So this is we only put one word against another. I wasn't going to get into this, yeah. but this thing about, you said that she was his wife. She was so not his wife. Um, they were living together. I said that that's what the obituaries said. Oh, well, that's, oh, I do beg your pardon. <laughs> that, that They got it catastrophically wrong. Yeah, well, this was the thing, is that none of her achievements were covered in the obituaries. Yeah. Uh, just this negative crap. They, they, there was this thing that they were together as a couple for, for years, a number of years. So, and when they split up, she wanted money from him. But, 
weighed against this is the fact that she was still married to her husband and still deeply involved with her husband. Admittedly, apparently, a sort of a non-sexual relationship by that time. But there's they they had like a little fantasy world going together, and it does seem a bit extreme that you're married to one man and suing another man for half of what he's worth. Of course, we're doing exactly what the obituaries did, where there's rather than celebrate her part in this film. We've, we've managed to get ourselves sidetracked I, I, completely here. Yes, but I think that anybody can take home from this the fact that this is a very interesting actress yes. person because she those movies she directed may have been failures, but they're all fascinating failures. Yeah. And I really want to see Ratboy and I really want to see the Tracer Russell one now too. And her performance in this especially is she, superb. I remember her as being not very good in the Clinic. Oh, I'll correct that. I thought she was good. She was in the Outlaw Josie Wales, wasn't she? I genuinely cannot think which film it was, and it's been. I've been sitting here trying to remember it, but. Uh, okay, so she was in. Th- that was the first Eastwood. That's where they met, the Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, and. Uh, she did play Misty for me, right? No, she has nothing to do with no. that. What am I thinking of then? Um, she did three movies with Clint Eastwood. Uh, anyway, which way you can, every which way. Uh, I'm, she might have done more. She did those three. She's Outlaw Josie Wales. <laughs> Something called Death Game. I chuckle at that because you're trying to get me to watch a movie called Game of the Death. The Gauntlet, a very good Clint Eastwood movie. Every Which Way But Loose, Any Which Way You Can, and Sudden Impact. At which Who point they... Sudden Impact? Jenny, Jennifer Spencer. Okay. So that's seven years they were together. Oh, seven years of classic. Seven years. At which, after seven years, they split up and she did those three movies. Uh, as a director and also apparently a, a TV movie so very interesting career trajectory um, and I and thought she was that great as an actress in the Clint Eastwood movies but in this she's amazingly good and I love her well it's a good part she's, she goes through this journey uh, of change or an arc of discovery that she starts out quite hostile to this deaf guy this weird deaf weirdo who's moved into her room but she rapidly changes that attitude, and he he encourages that change of attitude because he discovers that she's in love with classical music. Mm. So he goes out and this talk about an exercise of futility. He goes out and buys some Mozart because he knows she likes Mozart, and he buys a record player, and he plays. I guess he must wait until he sees her coming, or know what, he knows what time she gets home. He waits. He's watching out the window, so she comes in. I think that's the shop we were both talking oh. about, maybe where it. Rises from her arriving downstairs. He puts the record on. She hears the beautiful music. She's drawn into his room. And he knows... It's not like he's going to assault her. It's just that he knows that she loves his stuff and she can't can't afford the records herself. He just wants to give her pleasure. As always in the whole story, Singer is only trying to help in every situation. And every time he tries to help, it usually gets thrown back in his face, poor sod. Okay, I've written... There's a very impressive scene where she describes... The music to it mm. by finding metaphors for it. Uh, I've also written this is the shortest LP ever because the, the the LP plays in its entirety during the course of this scene and it only lasts about five minutes. But we can forgive that. Um, but it's quite moving because she has to think of images. Yeah. And then, then he has to read her lips. I've like never been able to track down a script for this, but I suspect I've got a feeling that she's improvising all that. Well, if she did, if she wasn't, then she bloody good performance because she makes a good fist of it yeah well and if she was improvising then she's an even better actor than we were already saying she was but <clears throat> you were saying there's, there's this interesting thing about john singer is that his behavior is completely saintly yeah but you never get pissed off with him or think of him as being like you know kind of holier than thou because he's just kind of very natural and relaxed and 
if I say warm, it gives the wrong idea because he's very constrained and internalized. But you feel the sense that warmth there and the caring. He's also almost always dressed in white, and there's something quite angelic about him. Well, in fact, it's Matt's not quite right about that. Um, it has to be said that uh, that Alan Arkin's outfits in this, he's got some of the nicest jackets, sports <laughs> jackets you've ever seen, and they're not strictly white. They're usually things like hound's tooth or a subtle check. But the thing, what the point I'm getting at is, not only does he look great, and they are all quite light. Yeah. So you're right about that. But he always looks like immaculately turned out, and which is sort of helps his cause because he's tremendously disadvantaged by being a deaf mute. So he's like he's decided he's going to look really sharp. And he always looks really sharp, which I think is great. I, and I want some jackets like that. You can add it to the other the jacket from the Dario Argento film that I want. Okay. John Saxon's jacket. You've forgotten already. You probably no, I haven't. I only remember John Saxon's hat. Well, that's that. Anyway, oh, and Alan Arkin's got some fabulous hats. In this. He does Seriously, have folks, you should just watch it for his attire and, and the photography. <laughs> but he's he has this saintly behavior where he tries to help everyone, and as you say, it often backfires on him. But he never comes across as a, a tedious, a plaster saint. He just seems like such a nice guy. And there's not just him. He's got everyone around him that he helps seems to do well from his help. They all seem to benefit from his presence, with the exception of his friend, who he's there to help in the first place. Well, how ironic. The person he cares about the most is the one he can't help. Yeah. Just before we go there, I want to say uh, there's a scene that's a tiny bit heartbreaking. Uh, we mentioned Stacey Keats as the drunk. Mm. Uh, and is jo- this the date? I guess you'd call it that. I, I never would have, since you started, you rolled the gay thing out to center stage. I never would have interpreted it like that. So my interpretation was much more, um, much more sort of heartbreakingly collegial or fraternal. But what I'm getting at is um, John Singer rescues poor Stacy Keach, who's drunk. And he, in fact, he's so drunk and full of self-hatred that he's beating himself unconscious against all. Yeah. And he takes the guy home and uh, lets him sleep on the floor or in the well, armchair. Prior to that, he manages to get the help from a, a doctor. He um, does. There's a black doctor who is... Not, who, never, who never treats white people, but yeah. partly be, because... Basically because John Singh is a deaf mute, he, he's willing to do it. Yeah. And um, that sets another story strand in We have yet another story strand which we'll, well come back to. But, which all we can elide. But the point um, is, he takes... He he takes uh, Stacy Keach under his wing. Yeah. And the, what I'm and Stacy Keach cleans up his act. He's a drunken bum, but he cleans up his act, gets a job, and John and he it turns out that he plays chess, and that's one of Singer's passions. So there's a scene, heartbreaking scene, <laughs> where John Singer is sitting there with a he's got the chessboard out, and the thing is he's got two cans of beer and clean glasses ready for yeah. the chess game, and Stacy Keach dro- just drops by to say he can't make it that night. In fact, he's I think he's forgotten. He just wants to say he's got this job at this the fair. And it's and the thing is, it's totally heartbreaking because he's it's so understated from Alan Arkin. All he does is he knocks the chess pl- row of chess players over, doesn't he? And yet again, it just highlights the loneliness. Yeah. Everyone's lonely. But I, 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 you know, now you put this gay thing in there, it has a completely different interpretation and not, I think, a better one because when he takes the guy back to his room to sleep it yeah. off, it. It it's puts, not licentious. He's doing it just to help. He's yeah. Yeah, but if, if he also wants to shag the guy, then that's a very different vibe. Yeah, you know but I, I mean. don't think that is the vibe here. No. And I think their chess game, I, I I describe it as a date because he's put so much effort in. It's the first <laughs> time he's socialised with <laughs> anyone. Just being cynical up to yeah. this point, and then Stacey Keach just turns up and leaves you straight know away. And you and just th- think that must have been his whole day. He's I been wanted, planning for this. It's true. And there's a similar heartbreaking thing in a movie called The Pawnbroker, directed by Sidney Lumet, starring. 
um, Rod Steiger. And it's about this guy who's a, an unfriendly pawnbroker, but there's a, a, a customer who comes in every day. Just an unfriendly pawnbroker. No, he's... <laughs> Okay, you laugh at me. I'm not going to tell. I'm not going to tell the anecdote now. We're going to have to do the movie. That's as your punishment. We have to do that movie. But there's a scene that it was heartbreaking in a very similar way, and we can discuss that when we come to that. We movie. will. I'm just trying to think of all the friendly pawnbroker films I've seen. I'm, I'm sure there's drug dealers, pawnbrokers. I'm sure they're all very nice people. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we've got this other plot strand that we haven't. Well, I only want to because we're going into well into depth about this movie. The only thing I wanted to say about that plot strand is. Um, this is such a great cast. There's this doctor who's doc called Dr. Coleman, I think. And he is played... Percy Rodriguez. Thank you. Really <laughs> well played. Who apparently did the voiceover for the Jaws uh, advertising campaign. Well, Percy Rodriguez is a voiceover guy like no one else. He has done so much stuff. And the one thing I know him from more than anything else is at Universal Studios, they used to have a 4D <laughs> Michael Jackson film called... Uh, uh, Captain, Captain Nemo. Eo. Oh, Eo. Eo. Yeah, yeah. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, Percy Rodriguez was the narrator on that. Oh, wow. So the, the voice, uh, it, it's, a, it's a good voice. He's basically what you, what happens if you can't afford James Earl Jones is you get Percy Rodriguez. And if you look through his credits, you'll see stuff and you think, I know that guy. But this is one of his very few on-screen yeah, appearances. He's, and he's brilliant. He plays this very dignified black doctor who normally doesn't treat white people because... Well, because the, he hates them. Well, for good reason. Yeah, and we see why. But the thing and again, is, this is a recurring theme in Carson McCullough stuff. You know, she she grew up around black families. Does she understand she, black people? Absolutely. Oh, okay. And and she, she very posh white lady. In case of people are trying to visualize Carson McCullough's. Not that posh. No. I mean, she came from a poorish background. She um, wasn't like a belle of the. Uh, you but know. she always had this guilt of um, black servants and black people working in lower jobs around her. Uh, when she could do the jobs too, and I mean, bear in mind she was also. I mean, she had a lot of issues. Gas McCullers. We shouldn't go into this right now. Well, we we can touch upon those issues when we do another movie uh, based Maybe on one of her books. Well, if we do Battle of the Sad Cafe, we could do the book as well. That'd be bizarre. Yeah. Well, we're going to end up doing books, but I was hoping they'd just be James Bond novels. But you know, we can't have everything. But the cru crucial thing I wanted to say beyond the fact that Percy Rodriguez is great as the Doctor, he has this daughter who's. Gorgeous. Cicely Tyson. Well, that was the thing. That's who it turned out to be. <laughs> she was in, in Sounder and, and a load of other... Uh, she's probably, in everything. Was she in the learning tree? But she's... Um, she's still with us. She's 96. Well, I imagine she can keep going for a long time because she's obviously got fantastic genes because she's an amazing She's woman. very selective about the parts she chooses. She won't play any negative... Uh, any roles with a negative black connotation. When I saw that it was her, I just thought that makes sense because she's in my mind as one of the great American actresses yeah. of that period. So a wonderful cast. Um, I'm going to kind of suggest that we might be... Oh, we, we've, there's one more thing that we do need to talk about, I think, which is the um, what happens about his friend. Yes, and so, him. Well, the, the thing is, it's terrible because he helps all these people and he becomes involved with all these people and... Mick, who's the teenage Sandra Lott, really warms to him. But at his hour of greatest need, she kind of forsakes him. And what has happened is, as we said, he, he's helped everybody except the Spermanides, who's the guy he, he cares about the most. There's this extraordinary scene where he takes Spermanides on a day trip away from the institution. Like, one thing that we should mention about Spermanides is that, and this again argues against them being... Uh, a couple hmm. in, in the sexual romantic sense. Spermanides has his teddy bear, which heartbreakingly he takes everywhere with him. He's obviously not really a grown-up person. Yeah. 
and he's got so he visits Sprimonides uh, in in a hospital bed in the institution, and he gives him candy, and Sprimonides hides it, and he's got his teddy bear there, and he manages to get permission to take this guy to get take Sprimonides on a day out, and the idea is that on the basis of this they will assess Alan Arkin's singer's uh, fitness to be his guardian, correct? Yeah. And the one thing they say is that he mu- you mustn't get you mustn't come back late on this first time out. And Sprimonides is a nightmare. Yeah. Do you want to explain what happens? Well, they go to a cafe, and he's he's really into his cream buns, as we know it, from. It isn't a cafe; it's a posh restaurant. It is a posh restaurant, um, and he's really into his cream cakes and things. Uh, but he's just he's just acting up, and anyone that's ever taken a toddler somewhere they oh, shouldn't, or how interesting, you've know, been out with anyone, will know that just sometimes. You just get bad days, and this is clearly a bad day for him. And sperm, and he, he doesn't understand sperm. Sp- sperm I know you spoke spelled with an I, but I, he, I think that's <laughs> it, according to IMDb, that's how it's spelled. Spiromanides would make more sense, but yeah. it's that's not what it's. it's. Um, <laughs> you, you can't. There's no way of getting across to him how important it is that he behaves and that they get home on time. And Alan Arkin's drawn between the fact that this guy's clearly having a good time. And the fact that he really does need he's to He's got to get back. It's a ticking clock. He's got to do it. And uh, unfortunately, it's not easy. The way he does he it... He ends up with a tantrum, basically. Yeah. When we say it's a tantrum, this guy's about seven feet tall and yeah. 300 pounds. For anybody who, who who's not metric, he's a big, huge, fat guy. And uh, so the way that Alan Arkin gets him out of the restaurant, away from his dessert, is he lures him out with a box of chocolates. Which he runs downstairs to buy. It's like a, it's a it's premeditated plan to get yeah, him out. Yeah, and he lures him out and he gets him into a taxi and they're on their way back to the institution, hopefully just in time. And then Alan Arkin throws the chocolates out the window. He's so angry at Sprimonides. And Sprimonides strikes back because earlier he'd picked a flower and given it to, to um, Alan Arkin for his buttonhole. He grabs the flower and throws that out the window. It's very kind of... Um, affecting scene it is and it it's all the more affecting that it's their last scene their last time together as well because what happens is alan arkin goes back and you know what's happened right away because the nurse who's the receptionist recognizes him and she says oh, i'll get the doctor and at that point it's so clear something that, like he should be the one to tell you yeah but it's clear that alan arkin is not slow he's as, yeah. he's on on this as fast as the audience is he knows his friend is dead and what happens is he's obviously desperately hurt and in need and he I would say that he needed to talk to somebody, but of course he can't talk. And that's the point at which Nick rejects him. And next thing you know, he shoots himself. And which I, I just thought, well, I thought it was too extreme a reaction. And also they didn't set up the gun. You kind of needed to do the Chekhov thing that you knew, knew he had a gun. But yeah, maybe not. Maybe that would have made it too obvious. In America, especially the American South, I'm sure you could assume that everybody has got a gun I think if all I would, the time. If I were to go to America again, I would make sure I had a gun. So, and but it, it it's it goes a little bit further than that, doesn't it? It, it goes to his grave uh, side where Sandra Locke and uh, Doctor Combe, Percy Rodriguez, meet at his grave, and they have some rather obvious dialogue about how he, uh, he helped everybody else, but he couldn't help himself, or he listened to everybody else's troubles, but he had troubles of his own. It's horrible. It's a nasty ending. Well, I wouldn't say that. I would say it's kind of um. It's to me. It seemed contrivedly tragic because it it, was, it seemed too extreme that he shot himself. It, it seemed too obviously a grab for my heartstrings, and that's one reason maybe why I don't think it's a great movie. It, things have been mounting up on him toward the end of the film. He's trying to help everyone, and he can't. And even the doctor, who's got an incurable cancer as well, 
Um, yeah, it's not the a laugh minute. Well, no, the, lost the, the, a leg. I know, and this is making it sound like it's a terribly um, bleak movie, but it's not. It's it's very sunny, it's very beautiful, and it's quite poetic and beguiling. This is the amazing balance of Castle McCullers in that you get bleak, but it's it's beautiful at the same time, and it's very hard to... It's We're, we're pretending that nobody wrote or directed this movie. I've got to tell you this, so... Um, Right. I can't think of the director's name at all. No, I've never heard him before. But he, <laughs> oh no, he's only done. Yes, I do. He, he's, he's Robert Ellis Miller. He's only got sixty-one credits, right? Yeah, but those are almost all TV. They I think are he did almost two all films. TV. Oh, so I see his trajectory. He, he was a hot TV director, moved into uh, features, and didn't set the world alight. That's what happened. Very mm. interesting. So that's him and the. Screen. But that's how he found uh, Percy Rodriguez. You can see all those cast members are people he's worked with on TV programs. I was going through. Um, and a lot of the extras and the other sort of side cast members in this are old hands for him. Well, the writer is interesting because he's also the produ- he wrote he was also the producer of this film, so I presume he got he got the option on the book and wrote the script himself. Again, that's a sole credit if memory serves. Uh, no, it's not. Thomas C. Ryan did three films. He did The Pad and How to Use It, which was like a, a sex comedy uh, in 1966. He did Hurry Sundown in 1967, and he, he did this one. I think the 66 one's on uncredited, though, isn't it? Oh, maybe, but not according yeah. to uh, not according to IMD. I have to know now. <laughs> I wish you hadn't said that. Because the train spotter in you has invoked the train spotter in me. Um, the pattern, how to use it. Let's have a look at this. No, he's full credited writer on that. In fact, it's based on a play by Peter Schaffer, who wrote um, Equus. So that's, that's obviously one that's going to have to go on the list. Anyway, so it's not no, uncredited, not, not uncredited. Down. So, uh, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. Okay, well, I have right. a peanut. <laughs> and so that's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say is that scene in the graveyard, the camera then rises up and we sort of see that the graveyard's in this kind of urban setting. And it's just one more beautiful poetic shot from James Wong Howe. This is a really interesting, really well-made film and I recommend it highly. It's a lovely film. It's one I watch often. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. I come to congratulate you. Drunk? No. I've been trying mighty hard, but I haven't been able to make it yet. Something wrong with you, Bill? You any good at sewing an amputated leg back on? What are you talking about? I'm talking about Willie. You remember Willie, don't you? Old Uncle Tom, Willie, my husband who I love. Willie? Something happened to Willie? I wanted you to be the first to know, because I hold you responsible. For God's sake, tell me what happened. Him and two others tried to escape. They beat him. One man died. The lucky one, as it turned out. Then they locked Willie and the other one up in the smokehouse near the camp. They chained their legs to the wall. 
When the leg irons was too tight for Willie, they jammed it in anyway. Two days they kept him locked up in there. How you know all this? Remember Buster James? He got out today and come to tell me. Buster said the first day you could hear Willie screaming in pain all over the camp. And his voice gave out. Anyway, morning of the third day, they let him out. Only by this time, Willie leg all swolled up from that chain. They took him to the hospital. Turned out he had gangrene, so they cut it off. No. Maybe you better have a drink. Portia, please. Why not? You got a lot to celebrate. Please. All I know is that I asked you for help and you wouldn't help, and now my Willie is a cripple. What can I say? You don't have to say nothing. You already had your chance once, and now it's too late. Must be something I can do. I'll tell you what you're going to do. They're sending Willie home as soon as he can travel. He's going to need a lot of care, so we're going to move in here with you. Of course, yes. I'll cook and do the cleaning and such. But all the time, you'll know I'm hating you. I got a feeling I'm a mighty good hater. And if I ain't, I can learn to be.